Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series, our guest today is talented business owner, writer, restaurateur, Simone Jacobson. Simone Jacobson, a co-owner at award-winning Burmese restaurant Tame on D.C.'s H Street in Washington, D.C., is the official curator for Colonasia. Since its introduction to the United States more than 150 years ago, Chinese and Asian cuisine has become an American staple. Its cooking techniques from stir-frying and smoking to steaming and braising have grown in popularity over the decades. At the same time, Asian Americans have been ridiculed, shunned, excluded, and discriminated against. Asian Americans were reportedly targeted at least 500 times in the first two months of 2021, according to the advocacy organization Stop AAPI Hate. With nearly 3,800 complaints received in the past year, more than two-thirds of these complaints were of verbal harassment, while 11% involved physical assaults, and the majority of victims have been women and elderly persons. The Chinese food at minimum and sushi and Indian food and these more commonly known Asian cuisines, they really are a part of the American food fabric. And so it's not a question of whether or not Americans like our flavors. But recently with the violent attacks and in some cases fatal attacks on Asian Americans and most painfully, I think for me personally and for so many of us, whether we're Asian or not, um, has been that they have been specifically targeted against elders. And that in our culture, you know, in Asian cultures worldwide, um, you know, elders are highly respected. And so it's sort of doubly painful for us that there has been so much violence and hatred, um, I think, stoked by the misperception that, you know, COVID is the fault of people with Asian features. That is our guest today, Simone Jacobson, talking about the abuse and the violence directed specifically at Asian Americans. In the COVID-19 era, anti-Asian racism and violence against Asian Americans have been widespread, and many storied institutions from small mom-and-pop shops to massive dim-sum banquet halls have permanently closed their doors. Why is the survival of Chinese restaurants so essential to the future of American culture and the soul of our cities? We'll talk to Simone Jacobson about those questions and more, including how do we preserve the legacy of Asian food in America, and why do these efforts matter now? Join me and our guest, Simone Jacobson, along with Simone's hand-picked panel of chefs, advocates, and activists who discuss the future of Chinatowns across the country, including farm-fresh food from Asian-American farmers, and we'll talk about the fast, casual ethnic Asian food, which is going to dispel some of the misnomers and myths about Asian cooking, and we'll be joined on the panel with celebrity chefs and restaurateurs, including Jet Tilla, Food Network star and chef partner in Peiwei Restaurant Group, and Christine Ha, the first blind contestant of MasterChef and winner of its third season in 2012, and owner of The Blind Goat and Sin Chao in Houston. This will be a wonderful series, so please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associate, Simone Jacobson. Simone Jacobson, welcome to the program. Thank you 
so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's nice to talk to you, too. In the global world and community that we live in, I know we're talking to you overseas. I hope you're doing well. I hope COVID is um, not caught up with you and your family and that everybody is practicing, you know, the safe social distancing. But uh, but I hope you're well. Thank you so much. I'm doing very well, and I'm happy to report that my entire restaurant team is either vaccinated or in the process of getting vaccinated. So there is some hope. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that our family restaurant, to me, will be open in the next few months. And so, uh, yeah, it's kind of starting to feel like there is some uh, momentum towards reopening and that puts everybody in really good spirits. Oh, that is great to hear, Simone Jacobson, because we're we're rooting for you, for your industry. And um, I know your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation is going to talk about your restaurants. It's going to talk an awful lot about the Asian community. Why don't you begin by telling us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? Yes, thank you so much. So our program uh, is actually a series of four, as you mentioned, four virtual programs. And the title of the series is Colonasia, uh, The Future of Asian Food in America. And the name Colonasia is a bit of a continuation. Uh, A couple years back, I worked with the Freer and Sackler Galleries on their grand reopening. And we called the festival Illuminasia because we lit up the the front of the building with a very elaborate projection mapping. And it was the first Asian night market on the National Mall. So I have some experience uh, working with Smithsonian, but specifically around Asian food cultures and food cultures. Um, And so this series uh, is a joint effort between Smithsonian Associates, the Smithsonian APAC, the Asian Pacific American Center, and then Smithsonian Freer Sackler, which is now um, our nation's museum of Asian art. And so this is a very unique collaboration between those institutions. And my role is as the um, curator of the series and the project manager in partnership with staff from all three of those institutions. And our series of four programs, um, as you can imagine, talking about the future of Asian food in America is quite a broad uh, topic with a lot of um, opportunity. And we have narrowed it down to four programs that we think are very compelling and timely Um, At the time that the funding was received for the series, of course, no one knew anything about COVID and they were intended to be in-person programs. And it's actually a bit of a silver lining that we're able to do them virtually because when we talk about the future of Asian food in America, of course, that's a national conversation. And so we are going to be able to involve a national audience. So I don't know if you want me to go into a little more detail about each of the individual programs, but that's sort of the broad overview of what we're working on. And we're very, very excited about being able to do Colonasia in this particular moment in our nation's history. Thank you very much for that, Simone. That's really helpful. I think we will talk a little bit about each of the individual programs, but I think before we get there, you know, you use this word opportunity and, and I think it is, I think given all of the news today, the the difficult conversations we're having in this country. I'll I'll cite one example with regard to the Asian American community. Um, earlier this year, the Asian American activists were carrying signs uh, that appeared on on various news programs, very important messages uh, saying, "Love us like you love our food." 
So maybe let, let me start with one of the more challenging questions. I think this opportunity for understand leads to an opportunity for understanding, perhaps. Why, why do we harbor complicated relationships with, with those who prepare these wonderful meals, this wonderful food for us? Well, I guess I'd have to start with my personal experience. Um, my mother is from Burma, but she is ethnically Chinese, Burmese, and British. Um, and to the average American, I think that she falls subject to the perpetual foreigner uh, stereotype, meaning that if you have any Asian features, you are immediately presumed to be foreign. Um, even though my mom's first language is English, even though uh, you know she has been in this country for fifty something years, um, in our family, you know, I think that we have been able to see that majority of people relate to Asian food and culture uh, as this and they treat it as if it is uh, perpetually foreign. And that's not just with Asian food or restaurants, but also with Asian Americans, with people who have been here in some cases for generations. So I think that um, this really hits home um, because in the African-American community, you know, there's a common sort of sentiment like people love black culture, but they don't love black people or they don't behave as though they love black people. And so I think that it's really a statement of solidarity for Asian-Americans that we know that Asian-American food is so ubiquitous that it is as if it is, you know, an American cuisine. I would argue that it is, right? The Chinese food at minimum uh, and sushi and Indian food and these more commonly known Asian cuisines, um, they really are a part of the American food fabric. Um, and so it's not a question of whether or not Americans like our flavors. But recently with the violent attacks and in some cases fatal attacks on Asian Americans and most painfully, I think for me personally and for so many of us, whether we're Asian or not, um, has been that they have been specifically targeted against elders. And that in our culture, you know, in Asian cultures worldwide, um, you know, elders are highly respected. And so it's sort of doubly painful for us that there has been so much violence and hatred, um, I think, stoked by the misperception that, you know, COVID is the fault of people with Asian features. And I specify with Asian features because in so many of these cases, um, the victims have been Vietnamese, the victims have been Thai. Um, and so even if your perspective is that the virus originated um, in China, which is not a reason to blame Chinese people. Uh, but even still, uh, these attacks have been very senseless and uh, horrific. And so I think it's sort of, um, it's shaken a lot of us, right? My mom is 68. She is the chef and co-owner of our restaurant. And she is, you know, fearful to leave her house or to even go to her own restaurant. Um, and I will tell you that my mom is not a fearful person by nature. She's a very bold um, and confident and capable person. Um, so I, I guess I, I would just say that it is both uh, personal and related to the series because you can't separate culture from food, right? Because what we eat and the way we eat it is um, an indicator of who we are as people. Thank you for that. I just think you you just use these these ideal, perfectly suited words. This uh, senseless and horrific acts against elders, against the Asian community, 
you know, we need we need this to just stop. And uh, my best to your mom. She sounds like she's a wonderful person. And uh, we'll get this we'll get this behind us um, at some point. But your presentations upcoming at the Smithsonian Associate will continue this important conversation. So let's let's talk a little bit about the upcoming presentations. The one that is most imminent here, uh, right before us, is the May fifth presentation, and the title of it is great, and and I, I want to understand it: saving Chinatown and our legacies. What is it about the survival of Chinese restaurants, in particular, and the preservation of this Asian food in America that's so essential to the soul of some of these cities? We live close to Washington D.C. There's a just a tremendous Asian community in downtown Washington D.C., but other cities where I've lived, San Francisco in particular, just vibrant, vital communities, and um, and these these communities and their food and this legacy uh, needs to be preserved. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this uh, May 5th presentation? Sure. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know why it comes to my mind. There's a movie that I watched recently, and it's called Lucky Grandma, and it's about uh, an Asian elder who goes to gamble in, I think, somewhere in New Jersey, and uh, the man next to her passes away, and she takes his money. She, he has money in his bag. And the movie follows her to really throughout Chinatown in New York. And it's wonderfully acted. I mean, just like delightfully irreverent. And I'm thinking about this film because it does a really amazing job of showing how uh, Chinatowns are a microcosm of these communities where you're sort of bumping up against uh, specifically Chinese communities, but Asian American communities writ large. And it becomes a cultural hub for information, assistance, mutual aid. It's so much beyond the food, right? It's how people figure out, you know, where do I go to wash my clothes and who should I talk to if I need a job, but I don't speak English. How do I learn English? You know, these are like common immigrant questions. And as a foreigner currently, this is my second time living abroad, as a foreigner myself in Mexico, which is so close and so far away at the same time, you know, I happen to be in a town where there's an immense amount of mutual aid and you can kind of just go to the corner taco stand and ask a question about life, not just about, you know, food, but to say, hey, does anybody know where, you know, I can get cash out of the ATM with a lesser fee? Just day-to-day kind of mundane questions, but the little things add up to be big. And so these are resource centers for entire communities. It's ways for people to socialize. And I think the pandemic has shown us how essential human contact is, right? If it wasn't obvious to us, um, if these Chinatowns disappear, then we lose not only the fried rice and the spring rolls and the sort of stereotypical menu items that people love and the convenience and uh, the sort of familiarity and the comfort of that food, but we also lose the ability to provide for these communities and for the communities to provide for themselves. I used to serve on the D.C. Mayor's Commission for Asian and Pacific American Affairs, and one of the things that we worked on almost weekly at our meetings was trying to preserve the housing for the Chinese elders in D.C. Chinatown, and I think that um, that really taught me a lot about what a constant battle that was to keep these people in their homes. I mean, everyone has all been pushed to the fringe. And so, again, drawing these parallels between communities of color, um, you know, we see this in Black communities, we see it in Latinx communities, and 
in Asian communities in the United States because of so many cards stacked against us, whether that's, you know, the model minority myth that we're all doing really well or the perpetual foreigner idea that, you know, if we have Asian features, we must be foreign and we couldn't possibly speak English or be from here or be from generations of people who are from here. Um, these are all things that I think are just sort of um, tied to Chinatown simply existing, right? Because culture is not a superficial um, process. It is an organic, self-sustaining process of people uh, creating, remaking, breaking down, and reshaping uh, ideas and values and then sharing them with each other. And so you need a physical place to do that, right? I mean, I think that um, as I say that, we're doing these programs virtually, but these are um, topics that are really related to placemaking and to the importance of physical space and physical contact with, you know, the people who make and sell your food with the communities that, um, you know, have been in the United States for generations and decades, but remain and continue to be sort of at the fringe of the margins of society almost no matter what we do. Um, and so I think that that program in particular is very relatable, whether you have Asian heritage or not, because I would say that the majority of Americans, I don't know this to be a statistical fact, but I think it's safe to say that almost everybody loves Chinese food or what they think uh, Chinese food is American Chinese. Um, and, and that is something that uh, we can all agree on. We can start there. Let's jump ahead here to the um, May 19th presentation, which is entitled Southeast Asia Got Something to Say. I, I will tell you this to Simone Jacobson. My wife is a small business owner, not a restaurant owner, but a business where community is very important, where face-to-face -face, my wife has a, a small ballet studio close to where we live and, and uh, near and dear to her heart. But it is an uphill battle to start a business. And when you use this term kind of stacked against us, it strikes me as though you you likely have you're, you have these things that are almost doubly stacked against you in terms of odds. There's this anti-Asian sentiment and then starting a business is just plain a challenge. You're going to discuss some of this in the upcoming presentation on the 19th, again titled Southeast Asia Got Something to Say. Yeah, you know, um, I will say that I, I think it's important for me to note that, um, you know, my first love and being Asian American and mixed and growing up in Arizona, my first love is hip hop. Whenever I travel the world, the culture that I connect to most is hip hop culture. And I mentioned that because the title is sort of an homage to a very famous moment in history when Outkast won a big music award and they said the South got something to say. And that's all I got to say about that. And so we, uh, we kind of flipped it a little bit to Southeast Asia got something to say because in that same vein of the moment where um, East Coast and West Coast hip hop were becoming uh, more well-known, the South was sort of this like um, important player in the hip hop scene, but a little bit underrated and underappreciated. And now I think that is the same with, uh, excuse me, Southeast Asian food. Um, and, you know, I know from experience because I co-own with my mother, you know, DC's only Burmese restaurant to me. And I wrote about this topic for Eater. And actually it was a conversation that I was having with the DC editor of Eater magazine, um, the digital magazine that's nationwide. And he said, you know, I'd really like for you to write about this 
topic because I think that in D.C. we're a little bit spoiled. We have Lao food, we have Uyghur cuisine, we have, you know, um, uh, farming food now. We have a pretty interesting uh, Afghan, et cetera. And so not every city in America has a Burmese restaurant. Not every city in America has a Lao restaurant. Um, and so I think that what broke my heart, I mean, I feel like my heart's been broken in, you know, a hundred different places since the pandemic began. Um, but in, as it pertains to Southeast Asian food, you know, some of our friends, they do sort of uh, hashtag Lao food movement or, you know, Southeast cuisine. And we're, we're in this special, we were, I, I felt, in a special tipping point where Washington, D.C., for example, has you know, two of the top 10 restaurants in America, according to Bon Appetit and Food and Wine, you know, Bad Saint, and very graciously my own restaurant. And so, you know, for us, I think that um, it's like you said, um, I think all communities of color will be familiar with the adage, you know, we have to work twice as hard for half as much. And then if you add to that woman, I mean, that just, you know, really gives you a extra hurdle to have to climb. And so the panel we've assembled is actually probably our most star-studded celebrity uh, panel. We have Jet Tila from the Food Network. We have Christine Ha, who's both the first blind contestant and winner of MasterChef. Um, and she also owns her own restaurant. Um, we have Chrissy Teigen's mom, Pepper Teigen, who just put out a Thai cookbook. Um, and then Genevieve Villamora from Bad Saint. And so um, I'm of course, you know, very, very excited about this topic. But I also think that um, we have this opportunity now to go into a bit of nuance because we are playing with this insider-outsider audience uh, courtship, right? So when I say insider-outsider, I mean that, um, of course, for Southeast Asian Americans or Asian Americans, I'm well aware that there's, you know, 60 to 70 different Asian ethnicities, but some people maybe are less aware, right, that... Um, you know, there isn't, that there isn't just one way to be Asian or to eat Asian food. And, um, you know, there's a funny example here in Mexico. Uh, they like to call, um, you know, uh, different Asian foods, whatever the food is, Chino, which is Chinese, right? So they call them, uh, like, uh, egg rolls are called, like, burritos chinos, right? So it's like, in their mind, if it's Asian, then it's Chinese, and this is common. And I think that you know, not all stereotypes and not all uh, prejudices come from bias, but just from ignorance. And so it's not always, you know, there's some lightheartedness in it. Um, and so this particular topic, I think, is super important because when the pandemic hit, I actually, I took a road trip from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, and we made it a point. My best friend of 32 years, she's Thai and her family owns Thai restaurants. And so we made it a point. So we wanted to specifically visit BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, people of color owned restaurants on our travels. And what I saw was that, you know, these Asian restaurants, they had been just on this wave like we were, right? I mean, in less than a year, we were nominated for a James Beard Award. We're the DT restaurant, Eater Restaurant of the Year. My mom was nominated for a rising culinary star with a bunch of 20-year-olds. And so it was this massive momentum. And it was like the, you know, wind got sucked out of our sails. You know, we got knocked off our feet. And now, you know, the question I asked in the article that I'm going to post to the panel and that we're going to, I hope, get to dive into because this conversation is really just getting started. And the question is, will America remember us when this, you know, pandemic has given us a little reprieve and we are able to reopen? Because my fear and my hope 
uh, is that, you know, we may or may not be able to come back to this special place. And, and I say that because people are going to be seeking, we've already seen it in our sales and in our um, challenges that we face as female and, you know, BIPOC entrepreneurs is that people are looking for comfort food, right, in these hard times. So to them, if they don't know Asian food, or let's say they've never had Burmese food, it's not a time to experiment and try. It's a time for pizza and pasta and maybe even Chinese food in some cases. Um, but, you know, there, yeah, there are, I mean, innumerable challenges, like you said, for any small business owner. Um, but we have this double, triple, quadruple hurdle um, challenges that other restaurants might not have, such as how do we name the items on our menu? Do I call it by its proper name, which is Onokauswe or Mohinga or Lapetho? Or do I write pickled peas salad and then lose the people that may have been to Burma that know that dish by its name, but might not want it if they don't know. And so there's all these sort of nuanced challenges of we want to share our culture with the world, but do we create a barrier when we use a foreign language or when we use foreign, you know, um, ingredients that maybe are um, too weird or too funky for some people? Um, so these are these are some of the nuances that I um, feel confident and, and excited that we'll get to get to dive into. And I think especially for these celebrity chefs, it's very rare that they're invited to talk about this because it's not being talked about, right? So somebody like Jet Tila might be invited to talk about what's it like to be on television or what's it like to own a restaurant and also you know work in in the entertainment industry. And so. I know that this panel of uh, presenters is especially excited to be able to just, you know, talk about something that's close to all of our hearts. We are with Simone Jacobson. Simone Jacobson will be presenting a series at Smithsonian Associates. It is about Colonasia. Simone Jacobson is a talented business owner, writer, restaurant tour. The program spans several months. It's a free, dynamic program about this subject of Asian food, Asian culture, life in a restaurant during a pandemic, and all of these myriad issues. Just a fascinating topic. We're so pleased to, that, that you're here with us today, Simone Jacobson. I just have a couple of additional questions for you about some of these presentations. Uh, the title of the June 9th presentation is Fast, Casual, Ethnic, Asian Food Beyond Misnomers and Myths. There is this myth about Asian food, whether it's uh, Uyghur or Lao, as you suggest, or Southeast Asian, I think, that that it should be cheap. It should be delicious, but it should be very inexpensive and and fast. And, of course, that's a myth, and, and you'll dispel that one. But maybe tell us about some of the other myths that you're going to dispel on, uh, on June 9th in the presentation. I feel like maybe I don't know yet what the answer to that is because this particular panel is incredibly dynamic and diverse. But I will say that one thing that is fascinating to me that I think this panel can definitely speak to is, uh, in my experience, I have met a number of Asian Americans specifically, but also kind of across the spectrum, Arab and Black and Latinx entrepreneurs who in the tradition of, you know, immigrants in the United States, a lot of our parents, they opened restaurants because it was the lowest barrier to entry or because someone in their family had a restaurant or some reason other than it was their ambition or dream. And now you have this wave of second and third 
you know, generation Americans, mostly between like one and what we call sometimes 1.5, right? Maybe they were born abroad, like my business partner, but has been in the States for a long time, or they were born in the States, but they're first generation Americans. There are many of us in that category, myself included, where this was our dream. We want to share our parents' culture and food and heritage. And so there was this kind of tension between uh, these entrepreneurs and their, our, our parents wanting us to be lawyers and doctors and, uh, you know, in these sort of more traditional, reputable uh, um, professions. And then with that, you also have the uh, rise of sort of celebrity chef culture and a, a more distinct respect for, uh, for cooks. Right. And so it's very interesting to see a number of these entrepreneurs are in that category of one or 1.5 generation, uh, first generation Americans. Um, and so I want to talk to them. Uh, for example, Sana from Diaspora Co. Uh, she is going to India. She's sourcing the spices. She's creating this dynamic um, company that is sustaining whole communities um, and everything so thoughtfully. I wonder if in her parents' wildest dreams, they could fathom that. I know my mom often says, I thought that I was going to bring America to Burma, right? I think in her mind, she always thought she would go back and she would teach English or do something related to the United States in her home country. And it turns out that she's been uh, sort of, I don't know, um, I was going to say tasked, but it has really been a choice for us to decide to bring Burma to America instead. And so it shows to me how reciprocal and, and more porous these boundaries are than we think, maybe not physically when it comes to, you know, passports and politics, but in the sense of, um, as you said earlier, how do we find common understanding? And food is one of those things everybody eats, right? Maybe everybody doesn't ride a bicycle or everybody doesn't uh, drink tea, for example. That's a very popular part of our culture. But everybody eats. So we, in our approach, I think we try to figure out um, what we consider a bridge or a way to invite people to our table. And these entrepreneurs, when we circle back to the overarching theme of fast and casual and cheap, we are just like smashing that glass ceiling with no apology and no looking back. And I think that that makes us different from our parents, right? If you look at Chinese restaurants of 100 years ago that had hamburgers and hot dogs, like it's clear what they're trying to do. They're trying to survive. They're trying to make their menu appealing to a wide audience. We are doing things that are funky and new, and we're kind of almost like, um, I said to somebody recently that part of the goal of this series is to normalize the fun, right? normalize all those fishy flavors that we got made fun of as kids for bringing in our lunch boxes. These are things that um, I think that's really what characterizes as we come back to talking about the future of Asian food in America is like, going back to the roots and going back to, you know, being bold and unapologetic about how we exist and coexist uh, in the world, but specifically in the United States, right? And to say, we are here. We're really proud to be Asian. And, you know, you should love us like you love our food because we're great. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Well said. Well, we are talking um, Monday. After the Academy Awards, of course, uh, which were held last night, and unique Academy Awards in many respects, and the Oscar-nominated film Minari, which I believe, um, 
I believe was nominated six times. And the uh, winner of, uh, let's see, I'm, I want to make sure and get this correct. The Best Supporting Actress was uh, was played by Yu Yung Yaun, Korean uh, performer. Uh, first time in history uh, that a Korean performer has won an Oscar for the film Minari. On the June 23rd presentation, you're going to talk a little bit about Asian American farmers. And uh, the subject of Minari is a farming community. Um, the idea of this kind of perpetual foreigner is, as you talk about, and this this burden that's carried by many in the, in the kind of these diverse communities. Do you believe that the American dream still resonates within the Asian community? And and uh, is it is it changing? Is it is it improved? Is it uh, a difficult one to embrace? Mm. You know, that's a that's a really um, heavy question in a sense, because I do think that um, the American dream has changed a lot. I think our parents, uh, if I had to sum it up in you know a few words, our parents, many of us in the Asian community, um, their perspective was keep your head down, work, you know, don't cause trouble, um, and and try not to stand out. And I think that now uh, many of us are doing the exact opposite of that because you know we're realizing that we have a stake in this future, you know, and we have a voice and we have um, we have something to say, we have a lot to say, and we are so so very grateful to our parents, but also very aware of the responsibility, the burden, you know, being a first generation child of immigrants uh, is one of the most incredible, um, like fantastic, but also uh, heartbreaking and hard things to do. Um, and I think that in, in the film, which I'm very excited, we have a special screening that's free. People can sign up for the Breer Sackler to see the film on June 18th. And then we actually get to talk to some of these Asian farmers, and we've titled the, the program on June 23rd, Asian American Farmers Look Back to Go Forward. And I, you know, sort of started thinking about that idea. I have a friend who has a, a beer company. He's, um, his family uh, comes from Ghana, and one of the words they use is Sankofa, the name of the beer company, actually one of the few black brewers in America, my dear friend Kofi. And Sankofa is the sort of rough translation, that idea that we reach back to go forward. And again, connecting the tissue between all these BIPOC communities, not to say that we're the same. In Southeast Asia, we say same, same, but different. <laughs> there, is, there is a lot of similarity here where, as I was saying, and, and you'll start to see, I think, some themes that people attend all four programs that some patterns emerge, which is that our generation, um, and you know, I am sort of a cut uh, millennial Gen X, and, you know, I lived in a world with no internet, so that, that makes me in a different category. And I think our, when I say our generation, that's sort of what I mean from, I don't know, anywhere from maybe 20 to 40, 50, um, you know, in our generation, we are very much interested and invested in the past, right? Um, I went on my own dime to study Burmese language because, you know, I wasn't taught as a child and I want to know, I want to be connected. And I think you... You see that theme in in the film. In film, it's such a poetic and powerful um, film. And what you see in Minati is that you know you have this young boy just being a kid, right? And I don't want to give too much of the film away, but then you know you have this grandmother come who brings just a, every shattered 
expectation of what a grandmother should be, what a woman should be, what an Asian should be, what a Korean should be. I mean, on and on and on and on. And so then this child is sort of trying to figure out what does all this mean? Food, of course, is a central theme of the film. And then you have these Asian American farmers now, right, in the present, who are actually doing this work. And they are doing things like, you know, uh, recultivating seeds that have been forgotten. Trying to be able to grow and eat chilies that people thought they wouldn't be able to get in the United States. It's kind of work that is really anthropological work that they don't have to do. They can grow apples and tomatoes like anybody else, but they're choosing to do work that is rooted in culture because it matters to them. They're choosing to do social good work in addition to the very hard labor of farming and make time for us to have conversations like this because, you know, there's a, there's a dual or triple or quadruple consciousness that we have as children of immigrants. And so we're always going to be thinking of the people at the margins of the margins because we are the people at the margins of the margins and we, we know what it feels like, you know, to have our parents called names and slurs and be just completely perplexed by that, right? Because, you know, to us, they're our parents. You know, how can anybody, how can anybody treat them that way? How can anybody, you know, hurt them that way? And, and they've worked so hard and they've paid their taxes, you know, it's kind of common American sentiment. Well, you pay taxes, like, as if that's sort of your badge of honor. Um, and I think that in this case, with this topic of farming, it's so personal because Asian American land ownership has dwindled to about 1%, which is kind of equivalent to African-American land ownership. And it's a big, 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 hairy, amazing topic. But, you know, Asian-American land ownership was, I think, something like 400 or 4,000 times greater um, not that long ago. And so, you know, with the very few Asian-American farmers who remain, and we hope that that's going to grow, you know, it is really important. It, It does matter that we're talking about who is doing the farming? Who is owning the land? As we talk about, you know, what does it mean to be American and what is the American dream? I think if you watch the film or if you don't, I mean, I hope that people will, but even if you don't watch the film, you know, you can resonate with the idea that to own something means something still, right? I think that there's a lot of talk recently about uh, millennials renting instead of buying, whether it's cars or houses, and what does that mean for the American economy and future? But also, you know, there's something about even just at the purest level, like to own something, to have something to call your own, whether that's a home or uh, a means of transportation, you know, or a special dress. I mean, whatever it is, it has meaning. And to work the land is such a gratifying and difficult thing to do. Um, that these particular Asian American farmers that are going to be participating in the conversation, I'm especially excited to chat with Kenny. Um, I'm excited to talk with Mai also because she's um, the founder of the Asian American Farmers Alliance. And she talks about why, you know, that was important to her because she looked around and, you know, she was getting sort of discriminated against and made to feel unwelcome where she was farming and she needed some support and solidarity. And I think, you know, the pandemic has shown us like we all, we need each other now more than ever. And so, again, circling back to this, quintessential, you know, plea and, and hope, you know, love us like you love our food. And that's what I think these Asian American farmers um, are working towards. Because when you live and work in a community and you work the land with others, um, there are quite a lot of really sweet and funny scenes in Minati uh, that show kind of this culture clash of uh, this very rural town and then this Asian American family, Korean American family that 
um, you know, just kind of shows up there trying to grow Asian vegetables um, without seemingly a lot of knowledge of the topic either. Um, so I think that um, I hope that, you know, this series, we put it at the end because we think it's sort of a, a beautiful way to be able to kind of um, bring to some closure the topic of um, looking back to go forward, which I think is something that uh, these fast casual brands, you know, like Omsom and Diaspora Co are doing. Uh, it's something that we're doing in Chinatown too, right? What is the legacy of Chinatown? And, you know, when we look back at it and what it's represented and, you know, as I was mentioning, these topics of mutual aid and, you know, cultural hubs, all of this is really a process. Of, and I think America is, as a whole is in this process right now saying, whoa, wait, where did we come from and where are we going? Because to know where we're going, we have to look back and see where we've been. And I think this is a little bit off topic, but it does relate that when we look at something, for example, like slavery, and we refuse to teach it, we refuse to confront it, we refuse to make amends and reparations, um, you know, reparations is a topic that's very, very, very um, intimately and urgently connected to land ownership, for example. Um, and so I'm saying all this to say that I think that um, as a nation and as a people, whether we come from other places or our parents, come, I mean, we're all immigrants. And if you look far enough back, you know, this is not our land. We're on stolen land. But I also think that um, one of the things that has been missing in our collective healing as a nation is to pause. And, you know, this pandemic has forced us all to sit at home with our thoughts and be existential and reevaluate. I mean, here I am living in a foreign country, which is not part of the plan. Um, and I think that if we do that, then we have a chance. <laughs> we have a chance with the American dream if we, if we take a pause and we sort of acknowledge where we've been, whether that's, you know, okay, we haven't been that nice to Asian Americans. Maybe we can change that. But we have to acknowledge first that Asian Americans like all communities of color in the United States, um, have really had a lot of knock, a lot of uh, structural racism and oppression that has forced us to really fight for a place at the table. Simone Jacobson, uh, very well said. I, I think you've just been exactly on topic, and I think we do need to look back. My family are immigrants. Many in our audience come from immigrant stock, and these are important subjects for our country especially for people who have faced real challenges and are facing them still. I think this is just going to be a wonderful series. Simone Jacobson's been our guest. We're going to put links up to where you can find out more about Simone Jacobson, more about the Smithsonian Associates' free presentation titled Colonasia. There are four programs in total here. As Simone Jacobson points out, the film Minari will be shown. It is going to be free. You can have uh, um, a registration directly from uh, the website uh, to get uh, tickets to attend each of the uh, presentations, but in particular the screening of Minari. What a great opportunity it's been to talk with you, Simone Jacobson. Uh, my best to you and your family, and uh, travel safely. We look forward to seeing you coming up here. My wife and I have already registered for the film. We're going to be there, and uh, look forward to seeing you and all of the rest of these wonderful guests for a virtual presentation uh, free to Smithsonian Associates. And um, be well, Simone. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. 
My thanks to Simone Jacobson for joining us today. This is an important issue. I appreciate your time. You're going to find links to the entire free four series programs from Smithsonian Associates on our website, along with many more details. My thanks to the Smithsonian Associates team for all they do to support the show. My special thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be safe, practice smart social distancing, get the vaccine, and talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.